Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called Immoral Criticism of the Church's Stance on Homosexuality. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. The subject matter of this episode has been on my mind for a while, and I was waiting for the right time and subject to address it properly. I'm going to jump back to the subject of homosexuality and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I addressed this subject briefly when I was talking about homosexuality in the Old Testament and New Testament, but I have a lot more that I want to say on this subject, and I'm going to make a strong assertion in this episode and do my best to back it up with um, with good philosophy. To this podcaster, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints' stance on homosexuality is immoral, and I want to illustrate that by going back to Immanuel Kant and talking a little bit about moral philosophy. To jump into the subject, I want to read a, an exchange I had with a friend of mine who is a believing member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This friend and I disagree on nearly every subject that you could conceive of. He was a roommate of mine when I went to college, and I have known him for the better part of my entire life. After Elder Holland's talk that he gave at BYU about a month ago at this point, this friend of mine started a discussion on Facebook defending Elder Holland's stance and his musket fire rhetoric, encouraging discrimination. For those of you in the future, listening back on this episode, this talk is from August 23rd of 2021, and this was Elder Holland addressing the faculty and staff at Brigham Young University. His talk has been discussed and examined at length by many other podcasters and people in this sphere, so I'm not going to dig too much into what he had to say in particular. I'm more going to focus on the church's stance on the LGBTQ plus community as a whole. Back to this exchange with an old friend of mine. He made a post on Facebook uh, defending the stance. He cited the musket fire rhetoric and, and encouraged members to um, stand up for their faith. Here is what I wrote to him. So I'm going to read you some of the things I said and how our exchange went back and forth. I posted to his, to his comments with this. I debated even responding for nearly an hour, but the other side of the argument needs to be addressed. I am deeply saddened by Elder Holland and his musket fire rhetoric. Regardless of where you stand on your belief in his calling as an apostle, 
Encouraging hatred and discrimination is not what Jesus taught. I can't seem to find a parable encouraging believers to kill non-believers. <laughs> I said it perhaps too facetiously, but his response to me was, The fact that you believe that his analogy encourages hatred and discrimination is evidence that you don't understand or choose not to understand his message. I've watched his address two times. And as for the life of me, I cannot see how some individuals are offended by what he is saying. I can't see how some are twisting his message. I guess it's your choice. My response to him after this was, I offer this quotation from Abraham Lincoln, which is heavily inspired by Kantian moral philosophy. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this, to the extent of the difference, is not democracy. And then I said, the way I understand this, I would say, is I would not be discriminated against. I will not discriminate. And then my friend replied, Abraham Lincoln called for muskets to be fired against slavery in defense of righteousness and God-given liberty. Even he understood the need to take up arms to defend that which God has given us. Elder Holland was clear in his analogy that when he called on the saints to be like the saints of old, to not only be builders of temples, but to defend God and his laws at the same time. This is where our conversation ended. I, I said one more thing. I replied to him, the irony of what you just said is that your stance is for literally the opposite of the moral stance of the quote I mentioned. Lincoln fought for freedom and you're fighting for discrimination. As I would not have my marriage discriminated against, I will not discriminate against any marriage. I want to point out also before I, I dig into what I was saying and, and why I was saying it. After this comment, we agreed to, to disagree and left it at that. There were others, other believers that tried to address the issue and, and respond to some of the comments I made, but as a whole, none of them addressed the concerns that I presented. To me, this criticism presented by Abraham Lincoln is perhaps the best criticism against the stance of the church and the history of the church on a wide variety of subjects. So let's understand a little bit about where Abraham Lincoln is getting this and understand this idea a little bit better. Kant, who I've mentioned before and probably will mention again down the road, in his work, A Critique of Practical Reason, says this, Man is never a means to an end, but always an end unto himself. What this, this is specifically referring to is uh, in philosophy called the categorical imperative. What he's saying, and I'll, I'm just going to briefly summarize because this, this subject could be a long discussion all on its own. But he says, using a person as a tool or a means to an end denies that person their own moral autonomy. And what he's specifically getting at is when you deny someone their moral autonomy, then the idea of right and wrong 
becomes impossible for that person. The judgments that we make that are right or wrong cannot be made if the person is being used as a tool or if they're being misinformed. And to that same effect, if this sort of treatment is okay, then anyone would qualify for that sort of treatment. If you can deny someone else their own moral autonomy, then someone else can deny you your own moral autonomy. If it's okay to treat someone in a specific way, it is also okay to treat you yourself in a like manner. So back to this quote from Abraham Lincoln, because Abraham Lincoln says it so succinctly. And this, this quote specifically that I had said to my friend, this comes from a speech that he gave on August 1st in 1858, and uh, it's just titled On Slavery. And so I'll read it again because it's very important. It says, As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this, to the extent of the difference, is not democracy. I want to substitute, as I did with my friend, the word marriage and marriage equality within the church right here into this same concept. I do not want my marriage to be discriminated against. If a person believes in a just and loving God, if you believe that God discriminates against one version of love over another version of love, there is nothing stopping him from changing his mind at some point and discriminating against your version of love and accepting a different version of love. Honestly, we see this in the scriptures all the time. There are many different types of marriages accepted and prohibited all throughout scripture, and it oftentimes contradicts itself. This idea is the basis for the concept of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is something that we're taught from childhood. When I think about the church's stance on this particular subject, it is on rocky moral ground. If you listen to the Mormonism Live podcast, Bill Real and RFM discussed possible ways for the church to reconcile this problem in a very faith-promoting way. I recommend you listen to, to the recent episode. It was episode 41 of Mormonism Live, and they called it Solving the LDS Church's Homosexuality Issue. The two of them present some very compelling ways in which the church might tackle this issue down the road. This idea of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, don't discriminate because you don't want to be discriminated against, it can be applied to just about every issue with church history. When apologists debate and talk about the uncomfortable history of the church, the discussion gets bogged down in the weeds when discussing Joseph Smith's polygamy. The debate shifts to, did he have sex with this woman or did he not have sex with this woman? How many of them did they, did they consummate the marriage with? What was the intent of the marriage? But the whole problem of polygamy is bigger than sexuality. It is much bigger than that. Let me illustrate 
why. I don't want to incorporate too much presentism into this. That is to say, taking modern day morals and applying them to the past. I want to say that yes, the fact that he may or may not have had sex with these little girls is problematic. But when the apologists address this, they make the claims that they did not consummate the marriage. To me, regardless if they consummated it or not, it is still problematic and needs to be addressed. If God commanded the prophet Joseph Smith to marry 14-year-old girls, why isn't he commanding the prophet today to marry 14-year-old girls? If God commanded the, the prophets of the Restoration to practice polygamy, why don't they command the prophets to practice polygamy today? What changed? If an apologist is going to say that a marriage between a 40-year-old man and a 14-year-old girl is okay, then they would also have to say that a marriage between a 40-year-old woman and a 14-year-old boy would be okay. These are morally equivalent. This same idea can be applied to the priesthood and the priesthood ban. If white men can have the priesthood, then black men should also have the priesthood. If the priesthood is withheld from them, then it is not moral. The same thing can be applied to women and the priesthood. Just as I would not deny the priesthood to any men, I would also not deny the priesthood to any woman. Just as I would not deny access to deity from any man, I would not deny access to deity from any woman. This is a concept of moral equality, where everyone deserves to be treated the same way. I recognize that there are circumstances and, and sometimes things change, but as a whole, discrimination is wrong. Speaking on the subject of, of Kantian moral philosophy and polygamy specifically, and, and even marriage equality, the problem with these ideas is if the church is telling you what is right and wrong, then they are trumping your own moral autonomy. Let's imagine for a moment that the prophets have told the church something that is wrong, that down the road in the future, the church will change course and teach something different. I could pick many different examples of this actually happening, but let's just, let's just take the subject of marriage equality. The church today teaches that marriage between same-sex couples is immoral. They're basing this on their understanding of the world, which has proven to be erroneous in many cases in the past. If they change their mind about the current doctrine and later teach that it's not immoral, and later accept it as a normative practice, then all of their prior teachings on the subject stripped the members of the church of the ability to determine the morality of the subject. That is to say, members of the church, before a change such as the priesthood ban, made decisions and established their belief system around a set of values based on incorrect assumptions about the world. This is one of the 
dangers of outsourcing your own decision-making skills to another person, whether it's a prophet, a podcaster, or scholar in any field. We all need to take in the information and make informed decisions based on our best understanding of the world around us. If the church teaches a form of morality, for example, teaching a gay man to marry into a heterosexual heterosexual marriage, they are trumping this man's moral autonomy of deciding what's right for his own life. And according to Kantian moral philosophy, they're violating this gay man's categorical imperative over his own morality. Let me illustrate it like this, and then I'll go back to this, this example. And I'm just taking two random last names. If Smith lies to Jones and convinces Jones to do something that Jones would not have done otherwise, then Jones is not informed in the decisions that he's making because Smith has lied to him. Smith, in this example, is trumping Jones's moral autonomy. This has clear applications to the way the church has handled its shifting doctrine over the course of its history. And specifically, as I mentioned, this moral imperative of the church to restrict same-sex marriages, the church is trumping the moral dignity of the LGBTQ plus community and violating the categorical imperative as presented by Immanuel Kant. So I could at this point go into John Stuart Mills's response to Kant's categorical imperative. There are things that I like about John Stuart Mills's responses, but there are also things that I like about the way Kant has, Kant has presented this concept. Many of the Objections that Mills presents to this, this way of approaching morality would fall into what Kant would refer to as a hypothetical imperative rather than a categorical imperative. So when I, when I apply a moral philosophy to the way I live my life, I, I tend to use a mix of what a lot of people have said. This subject is very nuanced in the way that I look at it in my mind. Honestly, most of, most of the way I look at the world is very nuanced. The difference between what Kant would de define as the hypothetical imperative and the categorical imperative is the moral law what, that he's presenting is not a means to seek out pleasure or avoid pain, personal gratification. This moral law is a way of determining the right way to do things and substantiating ourselves as moral beings. Whereas what he would what Kant would categorize as a hypothetical imperative is something where the particular questions or concerns might fall under a, a pleasure-seeking or avoidance of pain. To a certain extent, the actions that we do and the decisions that we make are reactions to the world around us. But they're not entirely reactions. If everything we did was determined by something else that happened, then the entirety of our lives would be a reaction to other events. So in Kantian moral philosophy, 
autonomy is the necessary condition for a moral ascription to any sort of decision or action or judgment that's being made. So when we remove that moral autonomy from a person, of them deciding what's right and wrong for themselves, as, as in the lying example and as in the preventing marriage equality, it is opposed to this Kantian moral philosophy because it is, it is precisely that. It is preventing someone else from having their own moral autonomy on a decision. So let me tie it back into marriage equality. When the church acts in this way, and they have done it on a variety of subjects, but when they discriminate based on any category, age, race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, when they discriminate in any of these ways, it is not moral. It's just not. When the leaders of the church talk about shedding tears and, and their sorrow for the situation as it stands, I feel uncomfortable with some of the conclusions that I draw from comments like that. And I'll present them in a couple of yes or no questions. If they are shedding tears about marriage equality, do they agree with it or disagree with it? If they are against marriage equality and shedding tears for this, why? Why would you shed tears for something that you disagree with? If they want marriage equality, then I can understand why they might shed tears over it because they're, they're trying to change things. I don't pretend to know what goes through the minds of these men. As members of the church are instructed, they have a lifeline to God in order to speak to him face to face and get direct revelation. Why don't they ask? They're crying together in these board meetings. Why don't they ask God? And why doesn't God come down and tell them? I don't have answers to a lot of these questions I'm presenting. But these are the questions that I think about and I, I ask when I'm listening to these men talk about these subjects. If they're crying about it because they know that members of the church identify among the LGBTQ plus community and want to worship as Mormons, why not find a space for them? As we discussed in this episode, it is immoral to find a space for them that isn't on equal standing as a general member of the, of the church. To discriminate them against them is immoral. This concept presents so many moral problems with the church. It's hard to unpack them all in a single episode. If the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints truly are crying for and have love and compassion for the LGBTQ plus community, then they need to show it. I guess the next question will be, what would that look like? If they had genuine compassion for this community, how would they show it? And a follow-up question to think about is, what would that compassion look like? I am of the camp that perhaps Elder Holland and other leaders, when they bring up this subject, 
they're not trying to be hurtful. I think they're trying to be compassionate in their own way, but it's not having the intended outcome. It's alienating these groups more. This discrimination, this alienation of these full groups of people is not the example that Christ shared. I want to clarify something. We all learn our code of morals of what's right and wrong from a lot of different sources, from our culture, from our society. A lot of these outside influences impact the way we look at what is right and wrong. What I am criticizing the church for here is the fact that the code of morals that it's handing to the members is based off of incorrect assumptions about the world. This assessment is true for the priesthood ban. It's true for marriage equality. It's true for women in the priesthood. When the church teaches people what is right and wrong, but does it in a way that is discriminatory or harmful, that is precisely where this ties into the Kantian moral code of ethics. As I said in the example, where person A lies to person B, and person B makes decisions based on these lies that person A gave them, person B cannot make moral choices because they do not have the right information. And this is what we see when the church in the past has taught harmful doctrines and the members of the church internalized them. They internalized these racist teachings, these misogynistic ideas. And those concepts have become part of the culture. They've become part of the everyday life of Mormonism. So when the church retracts these old ideas and approaches to racism and misogyny, as they're making these changes, it becomes evident that all of the members in the past that believed these things, they made decisions about how to lead their life and what was right and wrong based on these incorrect assumptions of the past. If the church taught these things, and engendered these ideas of racism, misogyny, then it is at fault for the racist ideas that, that permeated in the culture, for the anti-LGBTQ ideas that permeate in the LDS culture. The church is responsible for those because it taught incorrect ideas about them. The problem with this is that the church is imposing its moral code onto the members when they do not have a track record of having higher moral ground than any other organization. They are wrong just as often as any other church or any other political group. They make mistakes. They are people. And so when the members of the church hold these ideas as true, as eternal truths, the general membership is less at fault for being misinformed than the institution of the church, which is teaching these ideas that are harmful. 
the epitaph on Kant's tombstone. He's buried in Kaliningrad. Uh, it's uh, formerly it was the Prussian city of Konigsberg. His epitaph bears another quote from the Critique of Practical Reason. And this, this is the key, I think, to morality. And here's, here's the, the quote. It says, Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The more often and steadily we reflect upon them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. I love that line. The moral law within me. We should not outsource our moral, our moral code to anyone else. We need to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. When we let another institution tell us what things are good and bad in this world and what decisions are right and wrong, and we follow it blindly, then we will make mistakes and errors in our judgment of what? Of morality. The moral law is within all of us. This ability to choose right and wrong is within all of us. This whole idea of right and wrong is where the church falls apart. Many of the stances that it's held in the past, that it's changed today, and many of the stances that it holds now and will need to change in the future are immoral. Many believing members approach those that have left the church and wonder how they can have a moral code, how they can determine what's right and wrong. To me, it's not until you leave the institution that you actually can have a moral code. Because the code that's given to you by the Mormon church is immoral. And you're not making moral choices if you're doing what someone else tells you to do. And it's, if it's based on a lie, if it's based on misinformation about the world, it's not a moral choice. It's a reaction to what the church has told you. So to this podcaster, I think it's much harder to live a moral life within an institution such as the Mormon church than it is to find a moral code for yourself outside of an institution. That isn't to say you can't be a moral person and believe in God, but if you do believe in God, if you want to participate in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's fine. That's your choice. But if you're going to examine the morality of someone that leaves the church, you need to examine your own morality first. Christ is quoted as saying this same idea in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. This is the New International Version. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. Before you can judge the morality of another person, you need to assess your own morality. If you start looking at the morality of many of the beliefs and concepts within the Mormon church, you will find that they are immoral and discriminatory. 
I don't present it like this to say that the church should go away and that it's a that I want to see it burn to the ground. I have people in my life that love the church and that believe in God and worship God. My goal is to make the church a better place and a healthier organization for everyone. We would all do well to analyze our actions and reason out if the morality of the decisions we're making on a daily basis is sound. I think all of us, as we reflect on the decisions that we've made in our lives, will find many times where we have not made the right choice. What we have done has superseded the morality of another person. And that right there is the problem with all of this. When the church tells people what is right and wrong based on their belief system, which is demonstrably false in this particular category, the understanding the church has of sexual orientation is wrong. Therefore, them imposing heteronormative sexuality on the entire population is violating the categorical imperative of morality as presented by Immanuel Kant. The answer to so many of these problems is the golden rule that I mentioned earlier. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is a concise way of presenting this topic. Now that phrase doesn't encapsulate everything that Immanuel Kant presented. It's a good way to introduce the ideas of deontological moral imperatives. Thank you for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like it, subscribe to it. I appreciate the feedback that I've received. And I, I can't believe this is episode 20. It's kind of crazy how, how this has progressed from a simple conversation that I had with Bill earlier in the year into actually producing and doing this whole podcast. I'm so grateful for the listeners out there. Thank you so much for giving your, me your time. I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>